going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Welcome to a special edition of the Calgary Today podcast. Now, this is a conversation that went on much longer than my typical four or five minute chats on the show. Pardeep Singh Kalika and Arno Michaelis are in Calgary for the Mammy Bular Speaker Series at Mount Royal University on Tuesday night. They'll be presented with the Arts Distinguished Speaker Award after collaborating on the book, The Gift of Our Wounds, a Sikh and a former white supremacist find forgiveness after hate. It's all about the August 5th, 2012 shooting in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, which left six people dead, including Pardeep's father. The shooter was part of a white supremacist group Arno founded, but he had denounced them back in 1994. They came together to found Serve to Unite, an award-winning international peace-building and educational initiative. This is That Conversation. Let's start with you, Arno, and, and give me a little bit of your backstory and give us a bit of color into your past. I, I was born in the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the States. Grew up in a suburb just a bit north of Milwaukee. Uh, on paper, everything looked great. Nice house, nice neighborhood, parents together. They loved me very much. But I, I grew up in an alcoholic household, and my father's alcoholism put a lot of pressure on my mom, and their relationship sucked, and I... Started lashing out at other kids. Uh, I got a habit for causing trouble. I got like a kick out of it. It became almost an addiction. And like other forms of uh, addiction, as I, I didn't, I needed to keep escalating the behavior to get the same thrill. So as I go from a bully on the school bus in kindergarten to fights in the schoolyard in elementary school, breaking and entering in middle school, vandalism, burglary, start drinking myself when I'm 14. By the time I'm 16, I'm a full-blown alcoholic who's very familiar and comfortable with violence. Uh, hate is just another part of the thrill. And that's when I heard white power skinhead music. And I was already into punk music. I, and I still am. I don't want to make it sound like punk is some kind of gateway drug mm-hmm. and becoming a white power skinhead. But uh, to me, punk was just about breaking things and like offending people. And nothing offends people like a swastika. Mm-hmm. So that was really like the big attraction to me was that it it uh, it pissed people off. It, it repulsed people. So uh, me and a couple buddies started a gang and we started a band. And our band like just was a magnet for every disgruntled white kid we could find. And pretty soon we had this actual like sizable number of people who were uh, hell-bent on hating people and hurting people. And I was in that mode for seven years Hmm. Um, during that entire seven year span there was this growing sense of exhaustion like I knew what I was doing was wrong from day one but I didn't want to even acknowledge that voice much less answer it and in the same way a heroin junkie knows it's wrong to steal property or even prostitute themselves to get their drug like they don't care because all they want is that high and for me, it was it was a very similar thing. I just wanted that thrill <clears throat> of repulsing people. And this party is a therapist nowadays. I'm sure there's all sorts of mental health diagnosis <laughs> that could like you could slap onto this. Um, I say I wanted to repulse people, but I, I really I think it boils down to me not being comfortable with who I was and not having a good image of myself, and maybe fearing rejection of society. So I'm just going to preemptively make it so everybody rejects me already, right. and then I, I I don't have to worry about that then. 
um, mix that with this kind of addiction to the just the thrill of of uh, fighting, the thrill of uh, repulsing people, and those were really the, the factors that got me into it. Mm-hmm. Party, tell me a little bit about your backstory. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I was I was six years old when we moved to this country, or not this country, but Milwaukee, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. um, and uh, my parents came here. Uh, for many of the same reasons that most immigrants come here for a better life. And uh, I just remember being incredibly hard to find that uh, attraction as we initially moved here. My Both my parents had to work, so it left me to kind of raise my uh, younger brother. Uh, we were six and four, and uh, just trying to, you know, as, as Arnold was kind of talking about his growing up um, and finding a sense of identity, I was kind of thinking about my own personal journey and finding that sense of identity but instead of repulsing people and saying, you know what, I, I feed into that, I think there's a part of us that uh, was like, I want to assimilate. I want to be. I want to be one. I want to be like. I want to belong. Mm-hmm. And then those that belong, I feel like there's a sense of I don't want to belong. And it seems like grass is always kind of greener. Yeah. And I, I think just you know both me and me and Arnold kind of represent this, you know, with just boys growing up and and trying to find our place in the world. And uh, um, you know, I became the first one to graduate from college uh, in my family. Uh, I became a police officer, uh, worked in the inner city of Milwaukee, uh, which is, um, you know, one of the roughest areas to work in the United States. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, most of my arrests were violent crimes, homicides, uh, drugs, guns. Um, and about five years into policing, I became an educator in uh, the city of Milwaukee. So as Arnold was working uh, in 2012 in the inner city of Milwaukee, I was as well, um, then we were both just working as educators, and uh, you know that when August fifth uh, happened, it just really um, you know inspired us to to re- recommit ourselves to what we want to do, not just for that, those neighborhoods, but for an entire society. Mm-hmm. Arno, walk us through your denunciation of your white supremacist ties, and what sort of triggered that move. Well, <clears throat> that exhaustion was really the the driving factor that brought me to a point after seven years where I was like literally looking for an excuse to leave. The exhaustion came from all sorts of angles. Uh, aforementioned knowledge of my wrongness was a big issue. But also, growing up, I, I was a big film, and I remain a, a huge like film, TV, music buff. I, I've been to pop culture and all kinds of things. And those those things are all forbidden to a fundamentalist, violent, extremist ideology. And it's interesting because there's all these similarities between the white supremacist ideology and like a violent Islamist ideology or far right extremist and far left extremist. When you believe in this fundamentalist ideology, you can't have these elements of the real world intruding because they don't jibe with the the ideology. So I had to... uh, duck around my friends to watch Seinfeld. And and my girlfriend worked at night when Seinfeld was on. And uh, back then we had these huge suitcase size things that blinked 12 all the time that we called VCRs. And if you were really clever, you could get them to <laughs> tape a show. And I had to figure this out because my girlfriend would be very angry if she got home and Seinfeld wasn't taped for her. But I couldn't very well write Seinfeld on the spine of the tape. Right. Because if my buddies seen that, like it would be used against me. That would make me a race traitor. Mm-hmm. And, it would, and, and the politicking and the maneuvering, like people would use it to try to take me down. So we put it on a tape that said Amber's second birthday party because we knew no one would ask to watch that. Mm-hmm. 
And as ridiculous as that was, and I knew it was ridiculous at the time, there was part of me also saying like, okay, so in your whiter and brighter world, when Jews are driven off the face of the earth, like does Jerry Seinfeld get to stick around? If he does, do you think he's going to be very funny as you're like killing all these other Jews? And Seinfeld being this observational humor where day-to-day life, a a reference comes up everywhere you go, those those thoughts came up every time I saw a reference to Seinfeld, every time we have a bowl of soup or I see a limousine or, you know, Mm -hmm. countless references. And and in that way, uh, my affinity for TV and the same thing as with Hollywood movies or whatever – uh, was a big part of that exhaustion also. But the biggest driver of the exhaustion was when people who I claim to hate treated me with kindness. And I was very fortunate that that happened over and over again throughout that seven-year period. And there were people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino coworkers who refused to capitulate to my hostility because everything I did back then was meant to provoke hostility. Right. It was meant to like literally cultivate hate in the world. And these people were very brave, and they're like, no, actually, I'm not going to let you make the rules of engagement here. I'm going to make the rules, and this is how a human being treats another human being. Mm-hmm. And when those things happened, it indicated in the most powerful way how wrong I was, and and I couldn't escape those experiences. So after seven years, I'm looking for an excuse to leave, and that happens in kind of a two-stage process. In early 94, my girlfriend and I broke up. Uh, go figure, but hate and violence and alcohol is not a recipe for a healthy relationship <laughs> between a man and a woman. And I found myself a single parent to our 18-month-old daughter. A couple months later, a second friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight. And by this time, I'd lost count of how many people I'd known who had been incarcerated. So I'm finally like, okay, now it's time to leave. If I don't leave, death or prison is going to take me from my daughter. And that's that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. When you look at what he's gone through, was that an important aspect of how you were able to move on after 2012 and be able to sort of drive this message home that you guys are trying to drive home now together? It was. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, Joe. Uh, it, uh, it, it, you know, the first time that we met, actually physically met in person, um, all those, as you're nervous and you're kind mm-hmm. of racking your brain as far as like, can this person really change? Do people change? Uh, that lived this lifestyle and um, and really at that time, you know, not having a lot of answers for the shooting because the shooter killed six people and then killed himself. Um, you're really wondering the whys. Why do people do things like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to Arnold and getting to understand where he was coming from and, and the driving force of why hurt people hurt other people and that cyclical relationship that exists helped me understand kind of where he was coming from but kind of also, to be able to humanize the shooter. And I know a lot of people would say, well, why would you humanize the shooter, Michael Page? And I think that's what, what really, like, when we talk about forgiveness, we often assume that it means that you're going to forget or you're going to get over something. And while I don't presume to say that I know what forgiveness looks like for every single person, I would say that there's an element of no one can do you more harm than you can do yourself. Mm-hmm. And and going forward, what are you going to do to be able to break that cycle, to break that? And and meeting Arnold for the first time really put into perspective. And I think there, there's always this sort of divine idea that we are walking this experience in the space with. Mm-hmm. But it, it comes clear when we see sort of the omens 
that are there. And within everybody's life, we all have sort of omens that are there, but it, it depends on if we're willfully blind to those omens. And when Arnold talks about exhaustion, I think those omens have always kind of been there, but it's it's important for us to, to listen to them and say, what do I do going forward? Do I forge a more forgiving society or do I forge a more divisive society? Right. It was kind of almost one of those things of, um, I'll, I'll say you can talk the talk all you want, but you better be able to walk the walk at the mm-hmm. same time. So I'm curious on that that standpoint, you talked a little bit about forgiveness. So I'll throw that back at Arno and go, have you been able to forgive yourself for those seven years? That's an awesome question, Joe. Uh, it That's been probably the biggest challenge of my life is forgiving myself. Uh, doing all this Monday morning psychoanalysis and looking, I literally tell my story for a living and I, you know, this was what's wrong with me. This is what I did wrong. <clears throat> I always have the harm that I've done like front and center. Uh, and it's a healthy thing to, to reconcile that with openness and honesty. If it, it was actually um, not talking about it that almost consumed me in uh, 2007. I, I had this like suicidal depression I was in for almost a year and I hated myself more than I ever hated anyone else for the harm that I'd done. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started writing. And when I took my story public in 2010, there was all these kinds of people like, oh, this is so amazing. Like, good job. Congratulations. And I'm like, you're patting me on the back for no longer attacking people because of the color of their skin. Like, I didn't kick any puppies on the way over here either. You got to <laughs> pat me on the back for that? Like, I, I felt like I didn't deserve accolades. Right. Um, I also felt like I certainly didn't deserve to be paid for this. Like I, I was not comfortable with the idea of, of being paid to tell my story mm-hmm. because I, I still had this this part of me that hates myself, this part of me that is just like stewing in fear and loathing of who I am and my vulnerabilities. And that's the part of me that says, yeah, you don't deserve to get paid for this. You deserve to suffer. You, you don't deserve happiness. You don't deserve love. Mm-hmm. And it was really party. Um, along with, I'm very fortunate to have this amazing network of just some of the most brilliant people you've ever met, but party more than anyone really brought home to me that if I don't forgive myself actively in an ongoing process, if I don't have compassion for myself, I really got no business being up in front of a bunch of high school kids telling them about forgiveness and compassion. So it's almost like I Despite the the fear and loathing, Arno, <laughs> I'm, <like>, I'm going <laughs> to forgive myself just to spite you, and 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 in that forgiveness, like I, I'm doing that so I can serve others, so I can be a part of Party's healing process, mm-hmm. so I can um, maybe talk to a kid in high school who's having a hard time and and help them not make the mistakes I make, and and that can't happen if I'm busy beating the mess out of myself, mm-hmm. Party through this interaction and this partnership that you now have with Arno, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about the tragedy that you've gone through? And what has the last six years taught you about uh, life in general? Uh, I think the biggest thing that it's taught me is that uh, we, we live in this depth of human culture. And I think we were talking about it before we got on radio, but it's this ever-evolving culture. And if you yourself are not... Um, looking at yourself and being self-reflective, um, you will drown in that depth. And, and, and you know, we, we talk a lot about the work that we do. We do it with a lot of uh, um, people who are heavily engaged in social activism. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is a very consuming thing because you're looking at the world's problems. 
and lamenting and and trying to do something to pass policy, to change mindsets, narratives, and things like that. But at the end of the day, you have to come home and you have to look at yourself and you have to look, um, you know, in mirrors just as much as you look out of windows. And if the focus becomes I'm just looking out of windows and I'm just going to tell you about what's going on with society, I'm I'm picking up and I'm consuming the the, the problems of the world. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I've called Arnold before, and especially once we finished our book, uh, The Gift of Our Wounds, um, there's a part of, I'm, I'm in my office and I'm in my clinic and I'm sitting there. I'm usually, I'm usually taking clients in. But I'm sitting, uh, I'm, I'm standing at this time and I get this notification that the book is done, it's complete. And I just simply collapse on the chair. Right. And, I, and I start crying. And there's a part of me that knows that something is complete and done. And, but there's a part of me that knows that there's other battles to be, to be, to, to be had. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's always been that, but there's always been the support of having my brother alongside with me. It's fantastic words. And I think I've only got like a snapshot of what you guys are going to be talking about. That's tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night, the Mammy Bular Speaker Series, The Gift of Our Wounds, what it's called. Uh, both Pardeep and Arno, thanks so much, guys, for coming in this afternoon. Thank, Thank you, Joe. Joe. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.